Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Equinor. Is H2O the industrial emission of the future? At Equinor, we're planning to help industry fuel switch to hydrogen. And when hydrogen is used as fuel, its only emission is water. Visit equinor.co.uk. When the burdens of the presidency seem unusually heavy, wrote US President Lyndon Johnson in the late 1960s, I always remind myself it could be worse. I could be a mayor. And he had a point. The elected mayors of big cities walk quite the tightrope, held directly accountable by voters for every tiny aspect of their local area, while finding themselves buffeted and constrained by bigger forces far beyond their control. But here in London, our elected mayors mostly seemed to have a pretty good time of it in the years after the post was created by Tony Blair in 1999. The first mayor of London, Ken Livingston, was very clearly in his element, transforming the city with the world's first congestion charge and working surprisingly comfortably with both the high flyers of the city and even the Blairites ensconced in number 10. And his successor as mayor of London seemed to have a grand old time of it too, gadding about with his shiny new buses and his bike share schemes and hosting a wildly successful Olympic Games. I want you to know it was very, very hard just now to hand over that Olympic flag. Exactly. Do you think I should have tried to keep it? Whatever happened to that guy, anyway? But the third mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has been dealt a somewhat more challenging hand. Thank you, London. London is the greatest city in the world. Since his election in 2016, Khan has had plenty to juggle not least the whirlwind of Brexit, a succession of antagonistic Conservative governments, a wave of bleak terror attacks, and now a global pandemic to boot. But Khan emerged triumphant this year from a second mayoral election, which, honestly, no one doubted for a moment that he was going to win. I'm deeply humbled by the trust Londoners have placed in me to continue leading the greatest city on earth. A second term now stretches out ahead of him, and at the age of 50, his political career has plenty more road ahead. For all his successes, Khan remains, it's fair to say, a Marmite figure, as beloved by supporters for all he represents, as he is despised by opponents who dismiss him as nothing more than a slick PR operation. But love him or hate him, after five high-profile years at City Hall, and all those headline-grabbing dust-ups with Donald Trump, Sadiq Khan stands today as one of a tiny number of Labour Party figures with truly global reach. I spent a good chunk of last Friday with him, not in the podcast studio, not in Westminster either, but out on the streets of London. He took me, where else, down to Tooting, the multicultural district in the south of the city where he grew up, where he was an MP before becoming mayor, and where he and most of his family still live today. Our conversation kind of leaps all over the place. You know how these things go. But I tried to focus on two broad themes, the past and the future of the city where we live. So we talk about his childhood in the 1970s and 80s, his love of boxing, his family, and of course his religion too. We talk knife crime and the National Front, 
and the way the city's changed since then, for better and for worse. And we look ahead to the future, what a post-Covid London might look like. Yes, this was before Omicron reared its ugly head at the weekend. In a world where millions prefer to work from home, and where city centres risk hollowing out. So from Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're inviting you to meet Mayor Sadiq Khan and hear a street fighter from South London reflect on the past and the future of the world's greatest city. It's Friday morning. We're on a residential street a few minutes' walk off the high street in Tooting, and it's absolutely bloody freezing cold. My producer Ellie and I have arranged to meet the Mayor of London outside a local sixth form college, which was formerly the school he attended when he was a boy. Sadiq Khan arrives on foot, walking about a thousand miles an hour, security detail and press officer trailing in his way. The sight of the school raises a smile. After a shake of the hand, he's instantly into the chat. Yeah, so we're outside Ernest Bevan College. This was my secondary school and my sixth form as well. Uh, and I spent great years here, five years initially from year seven to year 12 and sixth form as well, so seven years in total. It's changed a lot. I mean, basically, it's, it's a fraction of the size it was. So part of the deal the school had to do with the, the government was to sell off some of the land for housing, which helped make the buildings better than they otherwise were. So they're now shiny, glass, impressive yeah. players. Was it not like this in the uh, 1980s? No, it was, it was a big school. Um, I've got to be honest, I love school. But it was, it you was a school. You school? I love school. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, I loved God, it. I hated school. Why some did my, you love school? Uh, some of my best friends from school are some of my best friends now. Khan, you might have noticed, speaks almost as quickly as he walks. And it was a tough school, listen. I mean, you speak to people who went to neighbouring schools and when they discover that I went to Ernest Bevan, it's like, oh, my God. I remember reading an article, and he did send me a text afterwards written by um, Amal Rajan, uh, BBC, who went to a neighbouring school, Graveney. And the article was, I'm paraphrasing, bloody hell, so he went to Ernest Bevan and made it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I sent him a text saying it wasn't that bad. He goes, no, it was that bad because we just get beaten up by you guys. And it's true, we're a bit hard in our school. Um, but I, I've got six brothers, so I was all right. And <laughs> they're bigger than you. They're all bigger than me. I've got, well, sorry, three are older and three are younger, but they're all bigger than me size-wise. <laughs> right. I'm the littlest, although in age I'm the middle one. You got looked after. Yeah, listen, all my family, I mean, I'm not suggesting, I'm not, I don't condone violence, of course, but all my family are boxers, uh, except for me. I trained, I didn't like getting hit. And so the thing, I was more into team sports like football and cricket and, you know, and, and tennis and squash. The thing about boxing is uh, it's a great, great sport. I love the sport. And now my brothers and my nephews are, are coaches. So we're a family that, you know, knew how to look after ourselves. When we were younger, we lived, you know, at the Henry Prince, where there's a boxing club near us that's been used by, you know, great champions who've gone on to be great champions. Joe Joyce, who's the current heavyweight, he went to our club. Frank Bruno went to our club. And so when I say I love school, it's in the context of, you know, people say it was a tough school, people say it was hard. Yeah, it was, and the body wasn't great, but that's all we knew. Did you ever get beaten up properly? Have you ever had a nasty one? Got into fights. Got into fights. Uh, I've not been hit for a long time. I've not been Glad hit for about it. 35 years. Uh, I've not been in a fight for a long time. But yeah, you got into fights. And, and you, you never know. forget, right? You never forget. If people know that they can bully you, if people know you're a pushover, it means your next years are miserable. And so you've got to stand up for yourself. And often, that gives you the respect you need. I'll tell you this, though, and this is a serious point. Um, you know, in all the years I was at school, 
there's only one time I can think of where a knife was involved. Because in those days, you know, it wasn't like that. But now, when I go to school and do assemblies, the prevalence of knives is just really, 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 really scary. And so that's the context. So I don't want people to go away thinking, you know, silly condones fights in school. The context was it was, it was use your fists and you, it was, you know, it was that sort of fighting. Not the stuff you see, you've seen in the last 10, 15 years where people take knives to school, people leave homes with knife. Many schools have uh, knife arches and so forth. But that wasn't the case when I went to school. Let's walk and talk, shall yeah. we? Knife crime, of course, is a tricky subject for Khan. He's made youth violence a key priority of his mayoralty. But while on some measures things have improved, London in 2021 has now recorded the highest number of teenage murders in more than a decade and could yet hit the highest ever recorded. Now listen, knife crime, youth violence, it's not inevitable and it can be uh, reduced and uh, got rid of. Look, over the last you know three, four years, we've been using a public health approach in London. I basically, we went to Glasgow and see what they did in Glasgow over 10 years to reduce um, you know, youth violence in Glasgow. And we emulated that by having England's first violence reduction unit in London. And what that's led to is youth violence is going down. A knife crime is going down. Gun crime is going down. Homicides are going down. But unfortunately, and it's heartbreaking, teenage homicides have been going up. So what you're seeing is fewer young people being stabbed, fewer young people carrying knives, but the consequences are far more serious. When I speak to those who work in trauma centres, when I speak to those who work in A&Es, what they're saying is the ferociousness of those who use a knife leads to there being more homicides. And the other point I say, not in any way excusing criminality, is there are complex causes for uh, violent crime, deprivation, alienation, poverty, uh, lack of opportunities. And those have been both exposed and exacerbated by the pandemic. And that's why I'm afraid you're seeing children and their children. We must not forget that children losing their lives uh, at the hands of knives. Do you think tooting is a, like a more dangerous, violent place than the one that you grew up in? or is it? Well, no, I, I mean, that, that's not the experience that my family has. I mean, my, my family still live here. My mum lives around the corner. I've raised my daughters here. What I do say, though, is over the last 11 years... You know, you have seen the youth clubs that I go to close down. You have seen the after-school facilities, the weekend facilities, the holiday facilities. I used to be part of a summer scheme closed down. At the same time, you've seen few police officers, not just in London, but across the country. So look, you know, austerity was a choice, but austerity has consequences. You know, serious youth violence began going up in 2013, youth violence in 2014 across the country, and London's not excluded. All of this is hugely contentious for Khan, and he knows it. His Conservative opponent, Sean Bailey, put fears about violent crime front and centre of his campaign at this year's mayoral election. And critics say Khan has flip-flopped on key issues such as police stop and search. But the mayor insists the Tory government's underinvestment in the sorts of youth activities that he enjoyed as a boy in Tooting are a key long-term factor in teenage violence. When I was younger, we grew up in Earlsfield by the Henry Prince Estate, and so what we'd have is we'd have the local boxing club, Earlsfield Boxing Club, but also um, our school would organise events after school. When I was a bit older, when I was a teenager, there was a summer scheme. There's a centre on Trinity Road. Every summer, we'd spend from you know dawn to dusk at the summer scheme, going on day trips to Littlehampton, to Margate, seaside resorts like, uh, like that. There was a youth club, Tuesdays and Thursdays, you know, table tennis, snooker, and so forth. I spent a lot of time playing cricket, playing football there was so much to do as a young person there was facilities available some of my best teachers weren't in fact uh, just teachers at school they were youth workers they were mentors they were people who taught me life skills you know 
been magnanimous in victory, being dignified in defeat, shaking the hands of your opponent. You'd see the people you'd play sports with on the streets and you'd nod and say hello to them, even though they were different schools, in different uniforms, because you'd met them on the, the football pitch or the cricket pitch or at the youth club. And there was that respect you had for each other because you knew each other. And do you feel like those facilities are still there for kids like yourself going up here today? No, I, th- I think there are you know, parts of London where young people have no access to safe facilities. Youth workers have lost their jobs because of the stop-start, stop-start funding. How could you advise somebody to be a youth worker when their contract is a six-month contract or a year contract? There's no continuity of funding. You've had many of these facilities where the landowners sold them and there's you know, luxury homes being built there instead. And so we do need to, and we are doing this, preserve what we have so we've now got new plans in from city hall which requires community facilities to stay there if somebody wants to have a new development they've got to in the new development protect the community facilities we're also skilling up youth workers we're now giving youth workers more skills professionalizing it in relation to dealing with the trauma of young people in relation to other skills that youth workers now have and so we're trying to professionalize what i think is a, a really important service and one of the things i want to do is uh, you know by the end of this term make sure every young person has access to both a mentor, crucial in my view, and also access to good youth facilities. How much can you as the Mayor of London sort of get involved in these very community-based issues? You know, isn't this your job to turn around these youth clubs and these youth projects? Yeah, and we are. I mean, so we're doing much more than any previous mayor has done. So one of the things that I did is say, look, it's not good enough for us to rely upon the statutory services. So what I did, and it was a controversial at the time, is divert money from business rates divert money from council tax towards uh, uh, what's called a Young Londoners Fund, £70 million. We're invested in more than 300 projects across our city. And here's the good news. This summer, uh, we were concerned uh, on the advice we received, not just from the police and from colleagues across the uh, globe, Chicago, New York, massive, massive increases in violent crime during lockdown. This summer, we were concerned a combination of restrictions being lifted but also some holidays, we'd see a big increase in violent crime. We invested in these communities, giving young people constructive things to do. Uh, violent crime went down by 32% uh, compared to previous years. So, so our policies can make a difference. And that's why it's heartbreaking when you see, yes, fewer stabbings, yes, fewer incidents with young people, but the consequences have been more serious. Is it frustrating, like, how much impact you can have as mayor? I mean, the problem is, is <clears throat> we are, and you know, this independent experts will confirm this, the most centralised democracy in the Western world. Mayors in our country, compared to mayors across Europe or, or in America or Canada, have very limited powers. When you compare that, you know, we get spent in London, 7% of taxes raised in our city, whereas in New York it's 50%, Tokyo it's 70%. You can see the compare and contrast. Many councils who've had to make massive, massive uh, cuts because councils rely upon a lot of their money from central government. We, in City Hall, you know, rely upon lots of our money from central government. That money has been cut over the last 11 years. So, you know, our powers are limited, our resources are limited, and it's frustrating. So we've made our way through the residential streets of Tooting now and are just turning right onto the high street. It's a raucous thoroughfare running through the heart of the district, packed with small independent shops, cafes, restaurants and other traders. So, yes, yeah, so this, this, this is the high street. So this was, you know, in the evenings, it's a really bustling, vibrant high street, of course. We're here during the daytime. Lots of uh, independent retailers here. We're just passing a phone shop. This phone shop used to be a video shop when I was growing up. So what you do is you'd hire a video to watch the weekend. When I was growing up, you actually hire a video player because we didn't have a video player at home. We'd hire the TV and we'd hire a video for your listeners. Don't know what a video is, by the way. So, video is basically <laughs> a video is basically uh, what you watch a film on. It's like think of it as a DVD. You don't know what a DVD is, do you? So, anyway, so, so 
before there was this sort of, you know, live streaming, you'd, you'd get a film and a video. We have to hide the video, uh, VCR. And what we'd do is we'd, we'd hire lots of videos to watch and basically stay up all night watching the films up. We watched Rocky 1 and 2 uh, in sort of five hours. And so we... And is this the whole family crowded around the telly watching? Yeah, one TV in the house in the front room. I've got six brothers and a sister, so we're a big family. All loving the boxing uh, movies. We all love the boxing, yeah. You can't beat Rocky. I, and actually, a few years ago, I went to Philadelphia and I ran up those stairs. <laughs> I ran up those stairs. You've got to run them up and at the top, you've got to have your, your hands above your head, you know. Eye of the Tiger playing I, in your well, mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, oh, yeah. <laughs> I the Tiger was Rocky 3, by the way. Oh, was Rocky it? Yeah, yeah. Shit, my, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, showing my uh, lack of knowledge. Just to say, I did actually check this afterwards. And, yeah, he's totally right. Eye of the Tiger was made specifically for Rocky 3. Who knew? So, lesson learned. Do not try to correct the Mayor of London on Rocky movies. Anyway, back to the show. Um, and has this high street changed a lot? Does it still look like it always did? It really has changed uh, uh, a lot. I mean, when I was growing up, lots of activity. We're going to go towards where the market was. There weren't supermarkets nearby in Tooting. So it's the independent retailers that you shopped with, not the um, supermarkets. So it was basically, on a daily basis, my mum would go to buy fresh fruit, fresh produce. And you'd buy what you needed. A lot more restaurants now than there were. I mean, eating out is a new thing. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, you know, I can't remember going out as a family to eat out, not just because we're a big family, but because it was, a, you know, the ability to afford eating out wasn't really there. Now, though, restaurants are cheaper, more availability, and you see more families eating out than when I was growing up. So what was it, all sitting around the dining table at home, mum's cooking? No, actually, we did more of a, you know, often it was a dinner on a tray, watching TV. Uh, often it was eating at different times because, you know, my brother's coming at different times, we're coming at different times, but... Um, it was a happy household. You know, m- mum did most of the cooking. Mum also supplemented family income by um, doing piecework, sewing clothes. She had a machine in the corner which she'd work on. We're actually passing Tutin Islamic Centre. Tell us this about used this. To be, this used to be a cinema. I mean, I remember when I was really little coming here to watch a film and then the cinema went bust and then more and more people were moving to Tutin who are Muslim. And so the mosque in Balam didn't have the space for people to pray in congregation. And so they got people to, people like my dad didn't have much money to donate towards purchasing this mosque, the cinema, and they converted to the mosque. And I was on the planning committee. I was a council at the time that gave permission for the cinema to become the mosque. And now the mosque has five congregational prayers. It's packed out on a Friday, packed out during the month of Ramadan. They also have supplementary classes, what's called madrasa. So, you know, it's two hours in the evening where after school you learn the Quran, you learn a bit about the religion. And it's, 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 it's one of the hubs of the community. So do you come here yourself a lot? I do. It's actually, this mosque is where my dad, when he was alive, he used to be the Muadin. The Muadin is the man that does the call to prayer. So my dad retired, he did the call to prayer at this mosque. But I pray all local mosques. But when I'm out and about in London, the great thing is there are mosques across London. So I'll often ask the team to work out what mosque I can pray in, in between meetings. I should say we've just passed, actually, the, the, the local culture centre, the Gurdwara. Oh, the reason why that's important is that's uh, the place of worship for Sikhs. And it's a really good example of, so the Gurdwaras we've just passed literally 20 metres from the mosque. The mosque is here, and in the side roads there are many, many churches. And we're going to pass what used to be a local Hindu temple. So a really good example of Sikhs, Muslims, Hindus, literally living sheep by jowl. Many of the shops are owned by Hindus or Sikhs or Muslims, getting on really well. Uh, So some of the tensions you may see in the subcontinent are not relayed here in the community. We also got great churches. We've had a thriving Polish community 
from after the Second World War. So when the new arrivals of Eastern Europeans came, there was a community there that knew them. What's mad walking down Tooting High Street with Sadiq Khan is that everybody recognises him, literally everybody. While we're walking, Khan is waving and nodding at families, passers-by, shopkeepers, everyone. It's really rare to be with a politician with proper celebrity status. Only one or two members of the cabinet will command this sort of attention. Most of those who acknowledge Khan are smiling and grinning. This is his neck of the woods, after all. Only one is visibly angry, a car driver bellowing at him through their passenger side window to sort it out. Khan either doesn't notice or just flat ignores her and carries on with his tour guide patter. We're opposite a Habib Bank, which is um, a bank in Pakistan, and people often send remittances back home to their family. My dad, you know, my dad working incredibly hard as a bus driver. My mum and dad would send money home, and it'd be through banks like Habib Bank. If you come just a bit this way, you can see another local mosque called Gatton Mosque, and I'm really proud of Gatton Mosque because I was on the planning committee when Gatton Mosque got permission. It used to be a scout hub, and it's now a lovely mosque. You can see the minarets further down, and next to Gatton Mosque is the country's first purpose-built Islamic ethos primary school. And Gordon Brown, when he was chancellor, came down to the school in 2005. And it's a cracking school that, again, you see. So you've got, literally, that the mosque there, there's a church in the road next door, Broadway Road. And what the church and the mosque do every year is have a fun day. They close off the road, and you've got Muslims, Christians, those of different faiths coming together and join each other's company. But it's, this is a good example of the diversity of Tutin. You've got Caribbean travel specialists over there another restaurant across the road including vegetarian restaurants a lot of our Hindu community are vegetarian so it's a really vibrant diverse place Were there more tensions back in the day as you remember it growing up than there are now do you think? So when I, when I was growing up the tensions were between people of colour and the NF the National Front and we call the NF because uh, the NF were around in the 70s and 80s it was only later on that the BNP the British National Party arose but uh, so I remember being you know, racially abused at a Wimbledon game in Plough Lane I remember my two big brothers being racially abused at Stamford Bridge when they went to watch a Chelsea game um, you know, so when you saw somebody wearing a green bomber jacket and Dr Martins you knew there was going to be trouble but there was also a sense of solidarity so whether you were you know, uh, you know, black, Asian white mates, there was a sense of solidarity where you stood up for each other so if somebody used the P word or the N word it wasn't just your mates of of colour, your white mates would step in and get involved in a punch-up because there were some red lines that you didn't, go, you didn't go beyond. Does that all feel like the distant past now or do you feel like some of those tensions are still there maybe manifesting in a different way? Well, what I'm really proud of is the progress made. Look, when my dad first came here, there were signs up literally in guest houses, B&Bs, saying, you know, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. There are no blacksmen, anybody who is a person of colour, right? And my dad experienced that and I've experienced that growing up. My children were raised basically in the same community and within a generation, one of my dad's children is the mayor of London, right? And the P word, the N word, the Y word, you know, it's not used in the way it was when I was growing up. So massive, massive progress made, but we mustn't be lulled into thinking things are perfect. There are still problems. We saw with the recent case with the Yorkshire Cricket Club. We saw with the, uh, the footballers during the Euros, the challenges that, that still exist. If you somehow weren't across the Yorkshire County Cricket Club case that hit the headlines a couple of weeks back, a young cricket player called Azim Rafiq gave powerful evidence in Parliament about what he says was a culture of racism during his time at the club in the late 2000s and 2010s. There was comments such as, you lot sit over there near the toilets, um, elephant washers, uh, the word was used constantly, 
and there just seems to be an acceptance in the institution um, from the leaders and no one, no one ever stamped it out. How did you feel hearing Rafiq give that evidence about what it was like at the Yorkshire Cricket Club and talking about the environment and the way they used to talk about people there? Yeah, I've got to be honest, I reflected a lot what he was saying and it had an impact on me because it was almost triggering because I remember playing uh, in mixed teams. I played for local teams in Colts. I was a really keen cricketer. I had trials at Surrey. I loved cricket. But I'm reflecting, when I became older as an adult, I played in Asian-only teams and I'm asking myself why that was and it was the experience you had in relation to not just the drinking culture but some of the uh, it's not banter uh, but some of that was beyond the pale and, I'm, and I'm, I'm asking myself why was it I went from playing in you know mainstream cults and mainstream teams and uh, you know, trying to get into Surrey to feeling more comfortable playing in an Asian-only team and I think many of us of a certain age you know, some of those were reminders of how bad things were. What none of us, I think, realises that's still taking place in real time. Because let's be clear, Rafiq's evidence, Azim Rafiq's evidence, is very, very recent, and it's recent at the most successful county club there's ever been, and that's why it's really serious. And I think the ECB have been too slow. I think Yorkshire County Club have been too slow, but I think it's not just cricket. Look at football, where you're a situation where you know you've got um, our team uh, taking the knee. And uh, our fans, England fans, members of the sports club, booing them for taking the knee. The flip side of that is that we now have these amazing Muslim football heroes, right, at your, your favourite team. Listen, that must feel amazing. Listen, the, the difference Mo Salah, Sadio Mane uh, have made is quite remarkable. It's quite remarkable. I mean, I hear Liverpool fans chanting songs, talking about Mo, you know, fasting and Mo praying, going to the mosque. And in positive terms, you know, you know the songs. I do. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, that's transformed people's views of uh, Muslims. You know, people said that we're not built well enough to be footballers. Asians are too short to be footballers. We're not strong enough. Listen, Mane's knocked over a few players in his time. He's a Muslim. I see that. And Saleh is, a, you know, a, you know, an Egyptian who you see the speed of this guy, the strength of this guy, the upper body strength. And so all these stereotypes have been broken. At the same time, though, they're educating, they're, you know, in a non-patronising way, educating people about what Mo and Sadio fast, right? Jurgen Klopp talks, talks about changing the times of training to give them a better flex they can open their fast. We've now seen Premier League players open their fast during a game and that's worth a thousand speeches from a politician, 10,000. I remember playing against you in the journalist v politicians match at Labour Conference. I don't think you were too shy about putting yourself well, out. To, well, to be fair, you guys were dirty. Oh, <laughs> you had Ed Balls up front. <laughs> nothing worse than that. Yeah, so we, we, we've got Ed Balls. We've got one dirty player and you've got 11. <laughs> <laughs> OK, OK, enough of the football bants. After the break, Sadiq Khan will take me to our final destination in Tooting, a legendary high street curry house just opening its doors for the lunchtime rush. Stay with us. A message from Equinor. Back to that question. Is H2O the industrial emission of the future? At Equinor, we believe so. That's because when hydrogen is used as fuel, its only emission is water. Our H2H Salt End project is planning to bring hydrogen power to the Humber, the UK's most carbon-intensive industrial cluster. See how we're accelerating the UK energy transition at equinor.co.uk. After a freezing cold morning pounding the streets of South London with Sadiq Khan, 
There's only one place I want to go to warm up. Now this is my producer Ellie's recommendation. Her husband Hasib is a tooting native. And it's a local institution. A Pakistani-owned curry house which has stood on the high street for more than 25 years. We're coming up now to what I understand is the famous Lahore restaurant in Tooting. Just, oh, just tell, tell us about this place. Right, right. You've committed blasphemy. It's called Lahore Karai. Okay. Now, Lahore is a place in Pakistan. It's the cultural capital of Pakistan. Karai is a dish that you cook some curries in. So Lahore Karai's been here for a while. The owner bought this place when it was a toy shop and he took a punt. It was the first main restaurant he opened more than 25 years ago. And uh, it's been refurbished now. Good quality, affordable food. I, I, I never answer the question I'm asked, what's my favourite restaurant in Tutin? Because uh. it causes huge offence. <laughs> uh, but I spend a lot of time here, and it's a great restaurant. And it, the great thing about the restaurant is, um, and it's always a good sign, by the way. I always say, uh, I do this when I go overseas, but when you're eating food from a different country, look around and see how many people of that country are there. And the great thing about Lokarai is like all the best uh, Pakistani Indian restaurants, people of that origin eat there as well. So you know, you'll see many Londoners, many Tutanites of Pakistani origin eating here because it's great food. Let's go inside and check it out, shall we? Right. So we're coming into the restaurant now, and uh, there are... are it, it's, it's very early. It's, it's early. There's only a few people here at this time. Hello, how are you? Hi, nice to see you guys. Hi, thanks for having us today. This absolutely fabulous-looking samosas and barges all lined up along the counter here. And there's Sadiq giving the owner a massive hug. Uh, they've got a room for I, us I've upstairs. never been here this early. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so, uh, I, I don't know why you're open this early. For those that are listening, we're here at a ridiculously obscene hour. Uh, it's five past twelve. No, listen. <laughs> Ellie has booked us a quiet room upstairs to conduct the rest of the interview. But Khan wants to grab a table down here in the main restaurant, now starting to fill up with early bird diners. We sit ourselves down by the window at the front and try to warm up. Walking down the street, waving at people and people nodding, you can see, do you know half of Tooting? <laughs> uh, listen, it's my manner, isn't it? So it's, uh, it's nice. It's nice. It's always nice coming home. Do you still have lots of family around here? And yeah, no, no, yeah. Here? So literally, I've got um, two brothers live a five-minute walk from where we are. I live about a 50-minute walk from where we are. My mum lives about 50 minutes from where we are. So yeah, so we've, we've stayed in and around the area. Obviously, property prices have moved out a bit more. But yeah, we're, we're, still, we're a close family. We, we, you know, we, my father's passed away now. So there's just my mum so we all like to see them quite regularly and your daughters grew up around here as well did they? yeah I've got two daughters 22 and 20 they went to local primary school they went to the same primary school I went to did they? the same secondary school my wife went to state primary and secondary schools and they're tooting girls and uh, yeah and they've gone off to university now both they? at university yeah what was that like for them during the pandemic? That must it was been... rough well my oldest one's finished university now but it's, it's awful experience and, I, and you know you know, I've lived the pandemic from a young person's perspective and it's been awful we talk rightly about the impact on older people clearly they're on the front line in relation to loss of life we talk about the impact in relation to those who've been working but actually for young people it's been heartbreaking to see you know the university experience that you and i enjoyed the character building the living with mates uh, having live lectures it's been awful i asked khan about the future for a city like london in a post-pandemic world we're speaking before the latest worrying COVID variant emerged and his focus is entirely upon trying to get people back into the city centre in the sorts of numbers they were coming in before. We've been doing a lot of work speaking to other global cities, New York, Paris, Hong Kong, Singapore. So we've been speaking to colleagues in those countries to see the impact of the pandemic on them and how they bounce back. One of the things is we need footfall back in the centres of our city, right? 
because as global cities rely upon international tourists, we rely upon international visitors, we rely upon office workers, not just to create the, uh, the, the vibe and the ecosystem, but because they bring in footfall that helps culture, hospitality, retail, so forth. If we're not careful, the pandemic could lead to an existential threat for our global cities. Why? Because people will choose to work from home rather than going to the office. Why? Because people will choose to do leisure from home rather than going to the theatre. People will shop from home rather than going to the shops and so forth. So we've got to make sure that the experience in person of going to the office, going to the theatre, going to watch a live gig, going to eat is better than the alternative at home. But aren't you just trying to swim against the tide, really? I mean, you know, I've personally found some aspects of working from home fantastic. If you've got little kids like I have, you can be around to help with childcare and, you know, crunch points when you need to. You have a very different work-life balance. You're not wasting time on the commute. I mean, trying to get people into the centre of town when they don't need to is surely a bit of a thankless task. Well, I think some do and some don't. So there are some jobs that you can do as well from home for a time. But I think one of the reasons why many businesses have benefited from working from home is the capital they had from the creative collaboration that took place before the pandemic, the fruits of the teamwork they had before the pandemic, the mentoring done of newer staff before the pandemic. You know, how do you mentor a new journalist when you're at home? How do I mentor young people in City Hall if uh, they're at home and I'm in City Hall? How do we have that collaborative, creative thinking when there's 40 people in a Zoom meeting? Look at the Crook Institute. The amazing work that takes place there, people from across the globe in one place in King's Cross. And so I think, yes, working from home's been you know, possible and sustainable for some people for some of the time. But I think long term, you know, I'm keen to see people back in the heart of our city. And how are you going to encourage them back in then, or at least back in in the numbers that were there before? Yeah, and that's the, the question that employers need to answer. How are they going to make it a better experience for workers to come to the office rather than working from home? At the moment, we're seeing from the numbers we see on uh, TFL. Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, people are coming back in decent numbers. Monday and Friday, they're not. How are employers going to entice workers back on a Monday and Friday? How are we going to entice people back to the theatre on a Monday and Friday? Some of the quality of output of films on Netflix is phenomenal, right? The films you can see on Amazon is phenomenal. Our cinemas are going to be innovative about how they bring people back. Should you not be planning for, though, a different type of city in the future where a lot of people do have a more blended working pattern, where people do maybe come into the office a few days a week? Should we not be accepting that how it's going to be now and planning for that rather than just trying to get it back to where it was before. Yeah, you're right about what we don't want is a, is a return to business as usual. So our recovery should not just be greener, but we should address some of the inequalities that the pandemic exposed, but also look about how we can help outer London. So we know many people who work from home in outer London may want to pop out for a sandwich or may not want to work at home by themselves, may want to have a workspace where they can be mixed with other colleagues from other workspaces in outer London rather than in zone one. And so we're doing lots of work working with councils in uh, outer London about what they can be doing to take advantage of more people working from home at the same time as not losing what is special about the return to the office. What have we got here, mate? Is this, is this, it, it's, it's, not, it's not English breakfast, is it? Because Jack, Jack wants to taste some, uh, some, yeah. This is called, this is called masala chai. Uh, chai, of course, is not a, a North London word, Jack. Chai is, uh, uh, is Hindi or Urdu for tea. And masala is the stuff that you try and, when you try, you try and you do your chicken chalvrezi. That, those masala spices are used in the tea. Every day is a learning day for me, yeah. So this is masala chai. Thank you. Would you like any uh, pakoras? I would love a pakora. Yeah, yeah. Yes, please. Thank you, man. Yeah, thanks. Um, sorry, you were just and saying so, about- and so, and so what we've got to do is 
help provide affordable workspaces outside Zone 1, important though Zone 1 is. I mean, the businesses in just the one borough of Westminster, they pay more in business rates than all the businesses in Birmingham, Bristol, Liverpool, Leeds, Nottingham, Newcastle, Manchester, Sheffield, and all those businesses in those cities together, they pay less business rates than the businesses in Westminster. So that should remind us why it's important to not, you know, ruin what is a fantastic central activity zone. The West End, the South Bank and City of London, they're crucial to the country because we as a city contribute about £40 billion net to the economy. How are we going to carry on doing that if these businesses in the centre of our city are struggling? Khan's single biggest focus as mayor, however, has been on air quality. And perhaps his one real signature policy is the creation of the ULES, a so-called ultra-low emission zone covering most of the city, where heavily polluting vehicles face punishing daily taxes if they dare to use the roads. As you'd expect, it's been controversial, supported by most residents, but opposed by a very vocal minority who point to other policies such as big new cycle lanes and the closure of some residential roads to through traffic as evidence of a supposed war on motorists. One of the things uh, we're keen to do is to not have one health crisis, a COVID health crisis replaced with another one, poor air quality caused by the stuff that comes out of uh, you know combustible engines. So what we're trying to do is to clean up our air by the policies we've got from City Hall. We've got the world's first ultra-low emission zone. Just in two years, the ULES led to a 50% reduction in toxic air in the centre of our city, but also 40,000 fewer cars coming into that area. You've got to give alternatives, walking, cycling, public transport. And that's why we're trying to change people's behaviour, uh, and that includes fewer cars uh, in busy roads in London. Would you like to get to a point where the only vehicles really going around the central London are electric taxis and buses, and that's about it? Well, look, the good news is we've got more uh, electric buses of any city in Western Europe. More than a third of our taxis are now electric. We have more charging points, uh, rapid charging points, than any city in Western Europe. But we can't just have cars on our roads. We've got to give alternatives to the car. I'm not going to entice somebody who drives to go to walk and cycle in public transport unless there's an attractive offer. That's why, you know, I don't apologise for increasing fivefold the amount of safe cycling lanes since I became mayor. We've widened pavements. We've also, you know, made sure public transport's attractive. The night tube means that you, rather than driving at night time to go to the theatre in the West End to go clubbing, if you're the designated driver, you know you can go out on a Friday night, Saturday night and have a, a night tube to take you home. Are you worried by the number and the growth of home delivery vehicles? I look down my street in Peckham and Amazon must drop off 30 or 40 times a day down our street. Different guys in different vans all the time. Yeah, and that's one of the big challenges and we've seen during the pandemic. You know, not just you know, key workers needing the roads, not just electricians and plumbers but also people who deliver as well. One of the things we're doing is talking to the delivery companies. I had a really good meeting with uh, Deliveroo, a really good meeting with uh, Amazon and others about how they can make sure that, you know, at least the last mile, but more, is zero carbon. And so there are some great councils like Hackney and City of London we're working with in relation to cargo bikes, in relation to zero carbon vehicles and so forth. But we can't have a situation where you've got big vans with one or two parcels that are diesel delivering to out London. And what that will lead to, by the way, is the improvements we've seen with the ULEs being undone by deliveries. Would you like drop-off points rather than to straight-to-home deliveries to be the norm? So we've already started introducing drop-off points. So we're thinking about how we can use our tube stations. We're looking at how we can support news agents. Look, news agents who are struggling because of the rise of uh, you know the big supermarket chains are now seeing increased footfall because people are going to pick up 
parcels. And we need more of that innovation because there's an opportunity there. There's a flip side to it all, isn't there? My, I had to get a taxi down here because there's a tube strike today, as you know. My taxi driver was not impressed with the cycle lanes and the low traffic neighbourhoods and all the rest of it. And I'm sure you hear this all the time. Do you feel like people who rely on cars are getting a bit of a raw deal in your oh, vision point, of the city? The point I make in a respectful way to minicab drivers and those who use our side roads as rat runs is imagine how those people live in those roads feel imagine those kids who are breathing in the stuff you're churning out feel you know main roads are what they say on the tin they're a main road and i think if we got more people out of their cars to walk cycle use public transport we could free up our roads for those that need our roads whether they're electricians plumbers those you know bringing you to your job or whether they're you know our buses and stuff and so look we are a roman town that over a thousand years has evolved our population on a good day is north of 10 million right if everyone goes in a car it's not sensible there'll be gridlock the standoff with the government over funding it's kind of weird to see a city like london having to go cap in hand to the government for a bailout every few months isn't it i mean do you feel like the whole funding structure of the way we support cities in this country is fair and and right in the way that we do it yeah look politics in our country is broken again in a cap in hand to ask the government for money when actually where the cities that generate the wealth that contributes to the Treasury's uh, coffers. We as a city, London, every year contribute net £40 billion. I don't begrudge that. We're the capital city. We should carry the greatest burden. We should be supporting colleagues across the country. We need the expertise of friends in Yorkshire making our buses and in Coventry making our taxis. We need that. But that should enable the government to trust us more rather than them you know, giving us money when we go cap in hand. They should devolve more powers and resources to cities and regions across the country. And I make this point... You know, if taking back control is to be meaningful, it can't be that those monies and powers going from Brussels to Whitehall, they've got to be going to cities and regions across the country, not just London, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, Bristol, uh, Yorkshire and Scotland and Wales. Last question. You've just turned 50, I think, haven't you? How much longer do you want to do this job for? Like, what's, what's the next 10 years look like for Sadiq Khan? Look, I love doing the job. I love being Mayor of London. I love getting out and about. Lockdown's been hard for me. It's been hard for our city, but it's been hard not meeting people. I thrive on company of people. I thrive using the tube, using the bus, walking around. Can you still uh, do that after all the security problems we've Yeah, had? yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you saw today, you know, there are police officers near me. They try and not be obvious. But we saw recently with the awful, brutal murder of uh, David Amos, and also, you know, obviously what happened to Joe. I saw recently Steve and Tim's that reminded me that Stephen himself almost lost his life a few years ago uh, as well. I think, I think there is, it is possible for us to have open democracy. It is possible for politicians, not just the mayor, but MPs to continue to see constituents in surgeries without the need for appointments to go door knocking, but to keep them safe. And that's what we've got to do. Because I think living with that threat, that risk in the back of your mind there must be so weird. Yeah, and so it's a question that my family asked me, and I, I suppose look, I, I want to go as long as I can. The question actually is one from my wife and daughters, how long they want me to go on for is the issue and stuff, because you know it does bring additional burdens to the family. I love it. I, I still love being the mayor today as much as I did you know, five and a half years ago. It still gives me a buzz. I still wake up every morning you know, pumped up, looking forward to the job. I still stay awake late at night thinking what more I could do. The good news now is I've got you know, nine, ten other mates across the country who are also mayors of different parties. And so we can share ideas now. We can, you know, we can express our frustrations, but also work out what's a good way to navigate central government. And actually, listen, Boris Johnson used to be a mayor. I think the Boris Johnson that Londoners knew as mayor, who believed in devolution, who believed the opposite of control freakery, who believed in trusting people, somebody needs to unlock that man from the cupboard he's locked in so he can devolve more powers and resources to the Manchesters, the Liverpools, the Birminghams and the Londons. And with that, 
he's gone, whisked out of the door by his security detail and off for Friday prayers, still speaking and walking at 100 miles an hour. Khan clearly has his views on the future of London, but his own future to me seems somewhat less clear. He said recently he wanted to go on and on as Mayor of London, probably the only time you'll ever catch him quoting Margaret Thatcher. But in this interview he sounded somewhat less sure. It's hard to avoid the fact his second term runs out just as we're due to go to the polls for a general election in 2024. And you do wonder if a return to Westminster politics might not eventually be on the cards. In the meantime, it kind of feels like this job is his for as long as he wants it. But as his predecessor has shown, being Mayor of London can provide a fair old leg up onto the national stage, if you want it to. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. These episodes are not meant to be time sensitive, so why not have a look through our back catalogue too, for others that you might enjoy. My producer this week was Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then. <laughs>